the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with Melissa Henson. She's the program director for the Parents Television Council. And they're going to offer some reaction to yesterday's Super Bowl halftime show. Never expected pole dancing, but that was featured. Anyway, we'll also talk with Sid and Jeff Holsclaw. They're the co-authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Looking forward to that conversation in the second hour of today's program. Well, taking a look at the headlines and looking back a couple of days, Senator Lamar Alexander announced late Thursday night that he would not support additional witnesses in President Trump's shallow, hurried and wholly partisan Senate impeachment trial, seemingly ending Democrats' hopes of hearing testimony from former National Security Advisor John Bolton and paving the way for the president's imminent acquittal as soon as Friday night. That won't... uh, That vote won't happen, however, until Wednesday. More on that later in the program. Republicans have a 53-47 majority in the chamber and can afford up to three defections when the Senate considers whether to add additional witnesses. They did that on Friday. That was a question that it was considered by a simple majority vote. Uh, In the event of a 50-50 tie by rule, the vote on witnesses would fall to this would uh, fail rather in the Senate. Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, uh, would likely have abstained rather than assert his de- his uh, debatable power to cast a tie-breaking vote in that case, but it was not required. Should the witness uh, vote fail as expected, and it did, the Senate would likely then vote on the articles of impeachment Friday night. They're going to do so on Wednesday. Uh, an extraordinarily unlikely two-thirds supermajority vote is needed to convict or remove the president. Otherwise, he will be acquitted. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, perhaps in response to comments from Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz, accused the Trump legal team of trampling the Constitution and wondering uh, how they could uh, hold uh, their law licenses. Well, the State Department on Thursday night raised its China travel advisory to level four, do not travel. That has since been elevated further, citing the spread of the deadly coronavirus days after evacuating non-emergency U.S. personnel and their families out of the country amid an uptick in infections. Those currently in China should consider departing using commercial means. The Department of State has requested that all non-essential U.S. government personnel defer travel to China in light of the novel coronavirus, officials said in that advisory. The advisory was updated from a level three issued earlier in the week that urged Americans to reconsider travel to Wuhan, the epicenter of the virus that officials have since quarantined, along with at least 17 other cities. The World Health Organization on Thursday declared the outbreak a global health emergency. There's been a recent jump in infections, which uh, totaled more than uh, 8,000 as of uh, Thursday. The virus has claimed the lives of 213 people in China. Well, the charter company that owned a helicopter that crashed in Calabasas, California on Sunday last Killing all nine on board, including Kobe Bryant, halted all services on Thursday. Island Express Helicopters is suspending all flight service for 
operational reasons, according to multiple reports. Company representatives did not provide further details about the suspension. A message regarding the crash has been posted on the company's website since last Monday, detailing the accident and offering condolences. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders took to Twitter on the eve of tonight's momentum-building Iowa caucuses to call on supporters to fight for solidarity as the Democratic establishment reportedly worries about his possible nomination. He's not technically a Democrat, you might recall. Sanders made a final appeal on Sunday to potential supporters to join his movement that he says will fight for social causes and for human solidarity. His plea uh, came as he was uh, either leading in the polls from the state or near the top. There is reportedly some concern in the Democratic Party of the possibility of the self-described Democratic Socialist becoming the party's standard bearer. Hillary Clinton has recently been a harsh critic of her former opponent, former Secretary of State John Kerry, who is in Des Moines as uh, Joe Biden's surrogate was overheard in a hotel restaurant Sunday warning of the very real possibility of Bernie Sanders taking down the Democratic Party down whole, end quote, according to NBC News. Sanders' closing argument came as the other 2020 Democratic presidential candidates were making their last pitches to voters before the Iowa caucuses, some of which were billed as Super Bowl watch parties. He, along with 2020 rivals Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, returned to the nation's capital on Sunday. Sunday night in order to attend Monday's session of the Senate impeachment trial of the president in which closing arguments were brought by both sides. And all three hope to return to Iowa this evening in time for the caucuses. They would have had time since uh, those closing arguments took about four hours today and ended some hours ago. Patrick Mahomes threw two touchdown passes in the fourth quarter to lead the Kansas City Chiefs to a comeback victory over the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl, whatever it was, 31-20. to Mahomes and the Chiefs were down 20-10 to heading into the fourth quarter. The quarterback threw a one-yard touchdown pass to Travis Kelt at about 6.13 left on the clock. Uh, then at 2.44 left, Mahomes found Damian Williams on a five-yard touchdown pass to put the Chiefs ahead. Williams would then put the dagger into the hearts of the 49ers with a 39-yard, rather a 38-yard rushing touch, uh, touchdown to put the game out of reach. It's the uh, first Super Bowl victory for the Chiefs in 50 years. Mahomes was named Super Bowl MVP. And in an exclusive interview with Fox News' Sean Hannity during the Super Bowl, uh, pre-game, President uh, Trump said House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's worst nightmare has happened during impeachment proceedings and confirmed that the State of the Union address would go ahead as scheduled on Tuesday, just a day before the Senate is set to acquit him as at his impeachment trial. I think she's a very confused, very nervous woman, Trump said. I don't think she wanted to do this. I think she really knew what was going to happen, and her worst nightmare has happened. I don't think she's going to uh, be there too long either. I think that the radical left, and she's sort of radical left too, by the way, but I think the radical left is going to take over, end quote. In other news, senators uh, will vote on Wednesday to acquit the president or not. Um, And uh, NFL has uh, aired a patriotic tribute to the American flag during the Super Bowl. That was refreshing. Michael Bloomberg's claim about children being killed by gun violence is off by about 73 percent. And the Fifth Circuit Court has denied to rehear the Obamacare severability case in Blanc. Ilhan Omar has paid an additional $215,000 from campaign coffers to 
her alleged boyfriend's firm. That's being investigated. And 2020 Democrats are slamming the party rule change that would let Bloomberg debate. Hillary Clinton is blaming Bernie Sanders for disunity in the Democrat Party. No big news there. And President Trump has expanded the travel ban to six new countries. Just freed terrorists killed by uh, police officers after the London stabbing spree. Unfortunate. We'll come back in just a few moments. I'll tell you a little bit of what happened on this day in history. Otherwise, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll talk to Melissa Hinson later. She's with the Parents Television Council. We'll get some reaction on yesterday's Super Bowl halftime show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in this day in history, 1690, the first paper money in America is issued by the Massachusetts Bay Colony to finance a military expedition to Canada, 1690. On this day in history, 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution providing for a federal income tax is ratified. And on this day in history, 1966, the Soviet probe Luna 9 becomes the first man-made object to make a soft landing on the moon. 1988, the U.S. House of Representatives hands President Ronald Reagan a major defeat, rejecting his request for $36.2 million in new aid to the Nicaragua uh, Contras by a vote of 219 to 211. Uh, 1995, Discovery blasts off with a woman, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Eileen Collins, in the pilot seat for the first time in NASA history. 1995, not that long ago. Well, the Senate Friday evening voted down a resolution to subpoena witnesses to testify in the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. 49 senators voted for the resolution to subpoena witnesses. 51 senators voted against that resolution. Only two Republicans voted for it. They were Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Mitt Romney of Utah. All of the Democrats in the Senate voted for the resolution to subpoena witnesses. The Senate is currently in recess uh, and will resume um, on Wednesday, in which the vote as to whether or not to remove the president from office will take place. Well, the impeachment trial of the president drew closer toward its almost inevitable conclusion with closing arguments today. Democratic House impeachment managers made a last ditch push to convince the Senate that an acquittal would be a death blow to the ability to hold a president in check, while Trump's defense team accused the Democrats of engaging in a rushed, purely partisan endeavor. Each side has been permitted to to take up to two hours to make their final case as proceedings stretched into another week amid expectations that a largely party line acquittal awaits the president by Wednesday afternoon, which is one day after the State of the Union address. I submit to you on behalf of the House of Representatives that your duty demands that you convict President Trump. That's a quote from House Manager Representative Jason Crow during his remarks, the first among the Democrats who delivered arguments. Crow addressed an argument put forth by the Trump legal team, member Alan Dershowitz, who claimed that Trump was working in the national interest and not his personal interest by asking Ukraine to investigate possible corruption related to former Vice President Joe Biden and his son. Dershowitz asserted that even if Trump was acting to aid his own reelection, if he believes his reelection to be in the nation's best interest, it would be proper. Well, this position was absurd, Crow insisted, telling the Senate we cannot and should not leave our common sense at the door. He went on to add that the logical conclusion of the Dershowitz argument is that the president is the state. Dershowitz had already clarified his position in an op-ed for The Hill, stating that pundits and partisan politicians have been deliberately distorting his words. There was a lot of that on back and forth during this whole proceeding. Well, as the president's uh, as for the president's team on Monday, attorney Kenneth Starr argued the House's impeachment power is not free of limitations. They've got the power, but that doesn't mean 
that anything goes, he said. Did the House Judiciary Committee rush to judgment in fashioning the articles of impeachment? Did it carefully gather the facts, assess the facts before it concluded we need nothing more than a panel of very distinguished professors and the splendid presentation by both the majority council and the minority council, Starr asked. What was being said in the sounds of silence was this. We don't have time to follow the rules, he said, pointing specifically to House Democrats' refusal to allow Republicans to call witnesses. Sarr also accused the House Judiciary Committee of rushing to move forward with impeachment and contrasted Trump's impeachment with that of President Bill Clinton and the effort to impeach President Richard Nixon, both of which enjoyed bipartisan support, unlike the Trump impeachment. Well, the final statements come after the GOP-led Senate voted 51-49 last week not to call any additional witnesses to provide testimony. Republicans cited the Democrat-controlled House's failure to call Bolton and others, as well as their insistence that they already had enough evidence to support their case. House Manager Representative Val Demings took a different stance during her remarks, claiming that Trump's efforts to use Rudy Giuliani to get Ukraine to investigate his political opponents and the withholding of military aid amounted to extortion and that Trump was trying to cheat in the 2020 election. In his statement, Alexander said that while Trump acted in a manner that was uh, inappropriate, it should be up to the American voters to decide his fate in November's election. The Constitution does not give the Senate the power to remove the president from office and ban him from this year's ballot simply for actions that are inappropriate. Well, during uh, closing arguments, Crow took issue with the notion that the impeachment effort was meant to either reverse the 2016 election uh, or interfere in the 2020 election. Senators, neither is true, he insisted. Well, House Manager Representative Hakeem Jeffries also accused the president of cheating and spoke in dire terms of the possibility of letting him get away with it. Make no mistake, he said, these are perilous times if we determine that the remedy for a president who cheats in an election is to pronounce him vindicated and attack those who exposed his misconduct. Well, early in his remarks, Jeffries, he focused on the allegation that Trump obstructed Congress by instructing officials not to comply with House subpoena. To condone the president's obstruction would strike a blow to the impeachment clause of the Constitution, he said. But while Democrats claim that an acquittal would place the president above the above the law, deputy counsel to the president, Patrick Philbin, he noted that the House of Representatives is also not above the law. He described the beginnings of the impeachment inquiry and how it strayed from established norms. In very significant and important respects, they didn't follow the law, he said. From the outset, they began an impeachment inquiry here without a vote from the House and therefore without lawful authority delegated to any committees to begin an impeachment inquiry against the president of the United States. That was unprecedented in our history, Philbin said. Well, as a result of the House fa- House's failure to follow protocol, Philbin argued the 23 subpoenas they issued were totally unauthorized and invalid, only to be followed by House Democrats violating every principle of due process and fundamental fairness in the way the hearings were uh, were conducted. This was a purely partisan impeachment from the start. Other attorneys for Trump's defense uh, took aim at articles of impeachment, the two that were brought with Mr. Pupura, uh, calling them deficient. Jay Sekulow stating that there is nothing in the charges that could permit the removal of a duly elected president. And it went on from there. Sekulow also made a case that Democrats were out to get Trump from the beginning, having nothing to do with the allegations described in the articles of impeachment. He began his address by showing a montage of Democrats calling for the president's impeachment over the course of his presidency, most of which took place long before Trump ever had his phone conversation with Ukrainian President Zelensky that inspired a whistleblower complaint that ultimately led to this impeachment. This was the first totally partisan presidential impeachment in our nation's history, and it should be our last, he said. 
Well, the final vote on Trump's removal will be held on Wednesday when the president is expected to be acquitted by the Senate Republican majority. White House counsel Pat Cipollone, he expressed optimism that the Senate would vote to acquit, ultimately allowing voters to decide in November whether or not Trump should continue to serve as president. At the end of the day, he said, we put our faith in the Senate, saying he has faith that the Senate will allow the American people to make their decision. You'll leave this choice to them where it belongs. Hmm. Well, Democratic West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, speaking on the Senate floor about the impeachment efforts, uh, urged his colleagues to formally censure the president as an alternative, saying that while the president's dealings with both Ukraine and Congress were simply wrong, he is struggling over whether to vote to convict and remove him from office and potentially tear the country apart. At the same time, Manchin also condemned the Republican-controlled Senate for failing to call additional witnesses in the impeachment trial, saying history will judge the Senate harshly for failing its constitutional duty to protect our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic. Never before in the history of our republic has there been a purely partisan impeachment vote of a president, Manchin said, who represents a deeply pro-Trump state. Removing this president at this time would not only further divide our deeply divided nation, but also further poison our already toxic political atmosphere. He went on to add, I see no path to the 67 votes required to convict and remove President Trump. However, I do believe a bipartisan majority of this body would vote to censure President Trump. Censure would allow this body to unite across party lines, end quote. Well, a censure resolution, which Manchin said would allow a party statement condemning Trump's unacceptable behavior in the strongest terms, has no practical effect and serves as a legislative rebuke to a sitting president. Saving the decision of whether to remove the president from office was a grave matter that has weighed heavily on him, Manchin noted, as he uh, has listened carefully to both sides of the issue and that he remains undecided. The president asked a foreign government to intervene in our upcoming election, he said, and defied lawful subpoenas from House uh, House of Representatives. Well, Trump is all but assured to be acquitted on Wednesday in that GOP-controlled Senate, where two-thirds vote would be required to remove him from office. Closing arguments today in that trial were largely directed more toward history than to sway the outcome. One final chance to influence public opinion and set the record ahead of Trump's uh, expected acquittal. California Democrat Adam Schiff, he implored those few Republican senators who have acknowledged Trump's wrongdoing in the Ukraine matter to prevent a runaway president and stand up to say enough. Uh, The president's defense countered the Democrats uh, have been out of out to impeach the president since the start of his presidency, noting short of any effort to undo the 2016 election and to try to shape the next one as early primary voting begins today in Iowa. Leave it to the voters to choose the White House counsel. Pat Cipollone said he called for an end to the partisan era of impeachments. But, of course, this will not be the end. And there's no double jeopardy, by the way, when it comes to impeaching a president. And Democrats have vowed to continue to soldier on in the days ahead. Now, they have uh, this year right before the election. But beyond that, if he's reelected, there's a possibility that they would continue uh, to seek to impeach the president on these or perhaps other grounds. 30 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes. <laughs> that was sort of odd. 36 minutes after four o'clock is our time. By the way, we're about, what, 40 minutes away from the Iowa caucuses beginning. It's not like a singular event. You sit and watch and somebody says something and then the crowd... It's uh, it's sort of a disorganized um, 
way of making a, a selection. So there's not a whole lot to see, but analysts will be going nuts from this point forward when that all kicks off in earnest in about uh, 40 minutes. We'll tell you more about that a bit later in the program. I mentioned that uh, Democrats are not going to necessarily let go of this whole impeachment focus, even if the president, as expected, is acquitted. Well, Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham said on Sunday that he and other Republicans, they're going to start calling witnesses within weeks for hearings related to Hunter Biden's work in Ukraine, as well as the FBI's surveillance of former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. We're going to get to the bottom of this, Graham pledged in an interview Sunday morning futures. Well, he urged Senator Jim Risch, a Republican from Idaho, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to call the chief of staff to former Secretary of State John Kerry to testify about concerns he reportedly raised about Burisma Holdings, the Ukrainian energy company where Biden served as a director. Biden joined, and we're talking, of course, about Hunter Biden, joined that firm in 2014, shortly after his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, took over as the Obama administration's main liaison to Ukraine following the overthrow of its pro-Russia president. Um, Republicans have questioned whether Joe Biden as vice president in 2016 improperly pressured the Ukrainian government to shut down an investigation into Burisma. The elder Biden and Democrats have accused Republicans of using the Burisma issue to detract from the impeachment proceedings against President Trump. So if you were hoping that Wednesday the vote up or down would put an end to the back and forth, uh, you would be sadly mistaken. Well, President Trump will deliver what he is uh, calling, or at least his uh, advisor, an optimistic, inspirational, forward-looking State of the Union address on the eve of the Senate's final impeachment vote, according to presidential advisor Kellyanne Conway, who um, quipped that success is the best revenge. Well, in an exclusive phone interview uh, in from Des Moines, Iowa, on Sunday, Conway previewed the president's State of the Union by touting the administration's efforts over the last year and teasing that many of his statements will end with the word winning. I think success is the best revenge, uh, Conway said. Winning finishes many sentences and the president will show up and barrel through as he always does. He will take his message to the people so that they can hear what's been happening in our country, uncensored by the bunch of critics and naysayers who have not been telling the truth and have been on his back since he announced his bid in 2016. The president's State of the Union address is slated for Tuesday night. It comes with the impeachment battle continuing on Capitol Hill. The Senate is expected to hold its final impeachment vote the following day on whether to remove the president from office or to acquit him of the charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. At this point, with Republicans in control of the Senate, with two-thirds majority needed to secure the conviction, the president is all but certain to be acquitted. But it is a rather awkward um, set of circumstances. Uh, Today, the the closing arguments from the House managers and the president's defense team, tomorrow the State of the Union, the following day, the final vote that will include uh, senators having an opportunity. I think they each have 10 minutes to actually speak, this will be the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, for those senators to actually speak to all of this uh, before a vote is taken as to whether or not the president will remain in office. And keep in mind, if he is impeached, uh, his name and they refuse to allow him to hold um, a federal office in the future, his name would be removed from the ballot in the 2020 Election. So all of that happening over the next couple of days. Well, today the Iowa caucuses are, are at work. And I guess the question among many is how do the Iowa caucuses work? Well, the eyes of the nation, at least those who care, which is a fairly small number, will be fixated on Iowa. The state's caucuses kick off the presidential nominating calendar. So this is the official kickoff of the 
presidential um, uh, contest. It raises the perennial question, what exactly is a caucus and how does it work? Well, tens of thousands of people in Iowa, Iowans as they're called, are going to gather tonight for the first time in February at caucus sites known as precincts across the state in what will be the first contest in the wide open and wild race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Now, there's lots of wringing of hands. There's been lots of travel and uh, speeches and all kinds of things, sometimes by surrogates because senators uh, who are on the uh, campaign trail were required to be in the impeachment hearings. But unlike a primary, which is a traditional one-person, one-vote election, there's no casting of ballots in a caucus. So you might wonder, how does someone win the day? While the number of caucuses has edged down in recent years, nine states and three U.S. territories still hold them. And two of the first three states that hold contests in the nominating calendar, Iowa and Nevada, are caucus states. In Iowa, the action will take place at 1,679 precincts all across the state which will be held in school gymnasiums, church basements, union halls, community centers, libraries, and any other place where people can gather. Well, the action kicks off at 7 p.m. Central Time, which means actually I think they've already started, with the caucuses normally lasting from one to two hours, depending on the size of that caucus. Well, this year there's a new twist. Iowa Democrats who can't make it to their local caucus sites will be able to take part at one of an additional 987 additional satellite caucuses across the state, the country, and the globe. Now, these new satellite caucuses will take place at factories, firehouses, group homes, or community gathering places, and the new option should help shift workers, Iowans with disabilities, and those serving overseas, give them an opportunity to take part. Only registered Democrats are allowed to take part in the Democratic caucuses. 17 um, years um, year olds can caucus if they turn 18 by November's general election. 41 pledged delegates to the Democratic National Convention, which is a pretty small number, are up for grabs in Iowa. But every uh, every delegate counts. And the months long process to choose them starts on the night of the caucus. So this is very important for the state of Iowa. And again, it's sort of a momentum-building exercise for what's coming. Well, in 2008, 239, 872 Democrats turned out to caucus in Iowa, which has... uh, was nearly 40% of registered Democrats in that state. Turnout dropped in 2016 with only 171,000, less than 30% of Iowa's registered Democrats. We'll see how enthusiastic they are this time around. Uh, here's how the uh, the action plays out. There's a call to order. A caucus chair and secretary are elected by the crowd. All this takes place tonight. A representative from each campaign can get up and make a final case for the candidate they're backing. Caucus goers, and these are Iowans making these uh, cases, caucus goers separate into groups and corners or parts of the room for their candidates of choice. So, you know, if you're for um, Biden, you go to this corner. And if you're for others, you go to their corners. Caucus goers separate into these groups. After the groups are formed, the person elected um, uh, chair of the caucus adds up how many supporters are for each candidate. Each candidate has to meet a threshold of 15 percent to be considered viable. That means the number of people backing a candidate has to be at least 15 percent of the total number of people in that room at the local caucus. For example, if there are 100 people in the room and 14 are backing a particular candidate, that candidate is considered non-viable. If a candidate is determined to be non-viable, then the contenders, supporters, need to support another candidate. So you might start out supporting Warren. You don't get enough to be viable. You can move elsewhere. Maybe you move to the Klobuchar side of the room. Well, during the re-caucusing process, as they call it, 
Um, supporters from the remaining viable candidates try to encourage those who are supporting the non-viable candidate to come their way. So the, the population shifts around the room. Well, after the re-caucusing process is over, the final numbers are tallied. The number of people in each viable group will factor into how many delegates each candidate wins from that precinct. And they're awarded um, proportionately. And the number of delegates a candidate has statewide will be reported as state delegate equivalents. But there's more for the first time. The Iowa Democratic Party is also going to announce the popular vote from the first round of caucus results, which could cause some confusion, because if you won in the first round, you could claim victory when, in fact, your uh, supporters were re-caucused. I'm sure that was entirely clear. Anyway, we'll talk more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Democratic race is unusually large heading into uh, today's Iowa caucuses with four presidential candidates locked in a fight for victory in Iowa and others still in a position to pull off surprisingly strong finishes. So many of the campaigns were looking to final uh, the final weekend polls to provide some measure of clarity. Polls show former Vice President Joe Biden in a tight race in Iowa with Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, as well as Pete Buttigieg, former mayor of South Bend. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar and entrepreneur Andrew Yang are also competing aggressively in that state. An Emerson College poll released on Sunday night found Sanders leading with 28 percent support, Biden 21 percent, Buttigieg at 15, Warren 14 and Klobuchar at 11. A CBS News poll had Biden and Sanders holding the lead with 25 percent each, Buttigieg with 21 percent, Warren 16, Klobuchar 5. And late uh, Saturday, a final CNN Des Moines Register poll opted not to release their survey because of concerns that the results may have been compromised. Well, for the first time, the Iowa Democratic Party will release three sets of results, who voters align with at the start of the night, who they pick after voters supporting non-viable candidates get to make a second choice, and the number of state delegate equivalents each candidate gets. Well, the new rules were mandated by the Democratic National Committee, uh, Committee as part of a package of changes that were sought by the Sanders campaign following his loss to Hillary Clinton back in 2016 in the primaries. The revisions were designed to make the caucus system more transparent and to make sure that even the lowest performing candidates get credit for all the votes they receive. But party officials in Iowa and at the DNC have have uh, privately expressed concern that multiple campaigns are going to spin the results in their favor, potentially creating chaos uh, on the caucus night. Uh, for uh, example, they're going to release three numbers. The one is the, the first number is the number of delegates, the number of individuals supported each candidate in that first round before uh, they um, re-caucus, as it's uh, called. And then once they are reassigned, if their candidate isn't viable, that would be the second set of numbers. Uh, and then the third set of numbers would be how many delegates these individuals uh, supporting the candidates would ultimately represent. So it could be a mess, although, you know, maybe, maybe not. Well, it's been more than a year, a year of political cul-de-sacs, controversies, uh, speculation, boomlets, bustles, enough hot air to roast a billion ma- uh, marshmallows. But we finally come to uh, the Iowa caucuses and the official beginning of this uh, campaign today, a year of being making uh, of being talked at by politicians and pundits, which, by the way, doesn't end tonight. It only increases after all the polling, historical precedents, voter uh, typographies, tens of thousands of man hours spent by reporters poking and prodding state Democrats 
we can conclusively say that nobody knows what in the uh, uh, in the caucus the outcome will be tonight. Caucuses are always harder to predict than elections, although they don't do very well with those either. And with state party officials looking for record high turnout, maybe 250,000 participants, we don't even actually know that, it adds even more uncertainty for forecasters who just can't wait to see what actually happens. Uh, we are a quarter of a million folks willing to tromp out on a cold February night to spend a couple of hours with their neighbors in what ultimately is a political convention. That means that while there are um, uh, two favorites, former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, the list of contenders uh, tonight has also included others. And while Warren and Buttigieg have both uh, retreated from their once lofty heights in national polls, They've invested heavily in their Iowa operations during their um, their last days and intensity of their supporters is obviously uh, uh, something that we'll be watching tonight. Um, A word for Senator Amy Klobuchar of neighboring Minnesota. She looks like she's um, uh, hoping to be a viable candidate, but uh, it doesn't seem altogether clear that that will be the case. Well, some of the things that that could happen over the next, um, well, hour and a half, two hours, Biden and Sanders would each love to claim uh, bragging rights with an outright win here. But the truth is that as uh, long as the two of them are ahead of the rest of the uh, the pack, the trajectory of the race as it is, a two-man race with sharp ideological um, differences continues. Uh, if Buttigieg has a big night, it would seriously disrupt the race if he manages to uh, come in ahead of Biden. Even if it's uh, for a second round, it would be uh, a nine on the um, on the Richter scale. Not only would uh, he, it crush Biden's electability argument, it would send the message to the majority of Democrats who don't want to nominate a socialist that Buttigieg is the real deal. Team Sanders' uh, nightmare is a Warren revival tonight. If Warren could somehow get ahead of Sanders, it would be a terrible blow to his bid and take considerable pressure off of Biden. That's not likely to happen, at least if the poll numbers are in, uh, instructive at all. Or the state party will be reporting... Uh, uh, these three sets of numbers and voters' initial preference for the final alignment could be interpreted as uh, the winning numbers for the night. So a lot to uh, to go on today, and we'll certainly report on that tomorrow, but won't be speculating on virtually anything else. Well, two of the FBI's four applications for warrants under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, Surveillance Act excuse me, to spy on a Trump campaign advisor lacked probable cause and should not have been issued in the first place. Well, that's the stunning admission by the Justice Department contained in a recent court filing with the Secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in Washington. What's more, the FBI made material misstatements and omissions in those two warrant applications, according to the Justice Department, and the agency isn't using information from any of the four warrants now. Before dissecting how we got here, it's important to note that this um, forthright admission by the Justice Department cuts against the story concocted by Uh, the president's opponents about the legal merits of the Russia investigation. Well, in a 2018 memo tilted, uh, or rather titled, Correcting the Record, the Russia Investigation, and sent to all House members when Democrats were in the minority, Republican Adam Schiff asserted FBI and DOJ officials did not abuse the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA process, omit material information, or subvert this vital tool to spy on the Trump campaign. But apparently they did. Turns out the FBI and Justice Department did abuse the FISA process, omit material information and subvert justice. And the Department of Justice is now admitting just that. 
Well, the wheels came off the Trump-Russia collusion bus in December when the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General published a report titled Review of Four FISA Applications and Other Aspects of the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane Investigation. Michael Horowitz, the inspector general of the Justice Department, testified before Congress laid bare the gross deficiencies in that investigation. He noted seven significant inaccuracies and omissions um, in that report. His report got the attention of the FISA court. Judge Rosemary Collier, presiding judge at the time, entered an order on the 17th of December directing the government shall no later than January 10th, 2020, inform the court in a sworn written submission of what it has done and plans to do to ensure that the statement of facts in each FBI application accurately and completely reflects information possessed by the FBI that is material to any issue presented by the application. Well, that's pretty strong uh, coming from a FISA court, especially since the rebuke was public. Well, on the 7th of last month, the new presiding judge, James Jeb uh, Bosberg entered another order regarding the handling and disposition of information, seeking detailed information about how the government planned to handle sensitive matters before the court in the future. Bosberg uh, noted that the court had received notice of material misstatements and omissions in the third and fourth FISA applications against former Trump campaign aide Carter Page. Bosberg's uh, order referred to a letter sent to the court by the Justice Department in December which contained the following statement. DOJ assesses that with respect to the applications in docket, you don't need to know, if not earlier, there was insufficient predication to establish probable cause to believe that Page was acting as an agent of a foreign power. But Bosberg's order contained another interesting statement. The judge wrote that, and I'm quoting, the government apparently does not take a position on the validity of the authorization in the first and second FISA warrant applications regarding Page but intends to sequester information acquired pursuant to those dockets in the same manner as information acquired pursuant to subsequent dockets. In uh, non-lawyer speak, that means the government isn't using any of the evidence it may have gotten as a result of spying on Page based on any of the four FISA warrants. And as I mentioned earlier, an investigation is expected in the Senate uh, to move forward on uh, what happened and how to avoid it in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with Melissa Henson with the Parents Television Council. We'll talk about the uh, Super Bowl halftime show. We'll also talk with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw, co-authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering God, the God who wants to be with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show about uh, eight minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later in the program, we're going to talk with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. They're co-authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. They'll join us in our next segment. Well, like many of you, I enjoyed watching the uh, Super Bowl. It was fun to watch uh, uh, Mahomes, who is a man of faith, uh, get the MVP award this time around. It was fun watching my 14-year-old niece form what I think might have been her first crush on, on, the, uh, uh, on the quarterback. Um, but the halftime show was, I suppose, not altogether surprising, but disappointing. This is a reflection of our culture. But of course, the uh, Super Bowl is a time when families get together, young and old. And the, uh, uh, the halftime show was, well, a bit much. So here to talk with us about uh, all of that is Melissa Henson. She is program director with the Parents Television Council with a reaction to yesterday's raunchy Super Bowl 
halftime show. Thanks so much for joining us, Melissa. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I suppose we shouldn't be altogether surprised. Um, pole dancing was a new twist. Uh, the outfits and the uh, the angles uh, from which the cameras were shooting some of those pictures, uh, the gyrations and the, the movements that uh, the adults um, were engaged in before they were joined by children and then resumed after the children left the stage uh, was still uh, disappointing. Your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It was disappointing. You know, after the Super Bowl halftime show with Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake, and what was that, more than 15 years ago now, um, the NFL played it really safe for a long time with their choice of halftime show performers. Uh, you know, I can remember they had uh, uh, the Rolling Stones come on, and, you know, um, Paul McCartney came and did a halftime show. I mean, they were playing it really, really safe for a number of years. Um, and even last year, you know, they had Lady, Lady Gaga, who um, is certainly no stranger to um, sort of over-the-top uh, on-stage an- antics and, and over-the-top costumes. But she, she did a very classy, very family-friendly halftime show last year. Um, so this is a really disappointing turn, and it's 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 especially disappointing because, you know, there were so many really powerful positive messages uh, throughout the Super Bowl. You know, look at some of the halftime or mm-hmm. some of the commercials. Uh, you know, the the Olay commercial uh, about STEM girls and uh, girls in science and so forth. So all these really wonderful messages of, of of female empowerment, and then and then they put on this halftime show that. The exact opposite. It's it's not about female empowerment. I mean, they they may try to spin it that way, but really, what it was was uh, catering to the male gaze and um, exploiting women, sexually exploiting women, or putting them in highly sexually suggestive uh, costumes and dance moves and uh, with the poles and all the rest. So it really was very disappointing. I noted that uh, before the Super Bowl, one of the concerns was the the increase of sex trafficking. It's a major hub uh, for mm-hmm. that. And it seems to me, you know, as you, you pointed out, the the emphasis, they try to say this is empowering to women. I, I see it as a disconnect, how um, engaging in that kind of graphic, uh, suggestive sexual conduct is empowering to women in an environment in which there's a growing concern about the exploitation of real women who are there or who are being trafficked there uh, during this uh, sporting event. Absolutely, absolutely. And and when you think about the little girls that they brought out on stage, you know, for that halftime show, including including the performer's own daughter, you know, they, they weren't seeing the Olay ads of, you know, girls going into science. What they saw were these women spinning on poles and wearing very revealing costumes. And so the, the message that those little girls that were right there in the in the audience and right there on stage, they were absorbing a message that in order to get attention, in order to become famous, in order to be well-beloved as a celebrity, uh, you have to um, strip down practically nothing. You have to behave provocatively. You have to dance provocatively. You have to act like you're sexually available. And that's a really disempowering message for little girls. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Michael Brown in his column uh, wrote this. Uh, this is just the Super Bowl. What about the music videos that young children have been watching for decades? Right. I doubt that anything yeah. that J-Lo and Shakira did during the Super Bowl is 
is any worse than the normal fare many young Americans have grown up with. No big deal. And of course, he's tongue in cheek. There have been scandalous, sexually explicit, virtually nude videos airing 24-7 for many years now. And to repeat, many American children, even younger than preteens, have cut their teeth on this trash. How many crotch-grabbing scenes have they witnessed over the years? Why then are we so surprised to see a glimpse of it during the Super Bowl? I mean, sadly, that's that's true. It is. It is. And and that, that's actually a very astute observation. I think the reason it was so shocking for so many people is because, you know, uh, a lot of times our kids are consuming media and we're not always fully aware of what they're seeing out yeah. there. You know, maybe they're, they're watching at a friend's house or they're looking on their phone. So I, I think this gave uh, parents uh, sort of a, a glimpse into the world their kids inhabit, and it was a real wake-up call. I, in fact, I've seen a number of Facebook posts along the lines of, you know, if you think what happened on uh, during the Super Bowl was bad, you should see what your kids are looking at on TikTok and some of these other mobile apps that kids are spending a lot of time on. And that's absolutely a fair and valid point. Um, and uh, it, it is a sad indication of where we are as a culture. Yeah, it's just the latest manifestation of the moral downgrading of our culture, where um, prostitution is celebrated, strippers are glorified, uh, uh, pornographic stars are are emulated. It's it's where we are today. And I, I my guess is we're not going to change what happens in the halftime Super Bowl, but we sure might be able to uh, to control to some degree uh, or uh, speak to young people about uh, the images and the the um, priorities of our culture uh, and the dangers of moving in that direction. Yeah, and it, it is so hard, you know, when you're a parent to try to try to convince your child that what the world is offering them is empty, it's shallow, it's hollow, it's it, it, it's not going to bring you life or fulfillment, and, and they're such greater riches out there, but the world is telling them differently. And it's so hard to convince young kids that that the world is feeding them lies and not to buy into those lies. Yeah, it certainly looked like something you'd want to aspire to when you have all these people on their feet screaming uh, their adulation and uh, in this whole thing. Well, I appreciate the um, Parents Television uh, Council providing resource for parents who want to know what's going on out there so that they can make wise decisions about um, how to guide their children and perhaps uh, guiding them away from the uh, Super Bowl halftime is one one place to start. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Again, Melissa Henson, Program Director for the Parents Television Council. Up next, Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. Does God really like me? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guests have authored the book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And it's a question that some have asked and wrestled with. It's one thing to say that God so loved the world, but does he like me? Well, my guests say um, that we all know what it's like to feel overlooked, to be disconnected and feel ashamed. We might believe in God's love in the abstract, but we often live our lives without experiencing it in any deep or lasting way. Well, Pastor Sid and Jeff Holesclaw, they understand this, and indeed, they felt it themselves. In their engaging book, they explain from the story of Scripture that God not only likes us, but wants to be with us. He also wants to work through us to bless the whole world. The book is filled with personal stories and simple, clear teaching from the Scriptures 
Does God Really Like Me? applies the good news of the gospel to the shame and disconnection that we all experience in our everyday lives. Well, Sid Holtzclaw is co-pastor of Youth and Families at Vineyard North in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as well as a ministry and life coach and spiritual director. Jeff Holtzclaw uh, has a Ph.D. from Marquette University, is also co-pastor of Youth and Families at Vineyard, as well as uh, affiliate professor of theology at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. He's the co-author of Prodigal Christianity, but today they join us as a couple to talk about the latest book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Sid and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, it's great to be with you. You write in the introduction, we felt disconnected and judged, overwhelmed by friends and underwhelmed by our relatives. We know how it feels when someone doesn't want us around, and we know how it feels when someone is sucking up all our energy. We have been yelled at. We've been yelled. Uh, we have yelled back. We've been ignored. We've done the ignoring. We felt people were just putting up with us, and uh, we're just putting up with others, too. Whether we know it or not, all these experiences color our experience of God. If you've been ignored, scolded, or shamed, then you've probably wondered, consciously or unconsciously, if God is ignoring, scolding, or shaming me. One more painful, um, uh, painfully, maybe uh, you think God is just putting up with me. Let's begin with the title of the book, Does God Really Like Me? Why is it an important question when we know in Scripture that uh, God so loved the world, which is a very large number, that he gave his only begotten son? Yeah, well, we found in our ministries and our lives together that um, that when you tell people that God loves them, that because of those past hurts, those wounds from like childhood or just growing up, that a lot of times telling people that God loves them just kind of bounces off of them. And so we, we've been trying, how do we find language that really connects, especially with younger people, but really just everybody that helps kind of sneak past some of those defenses and kind of help the gospel seeds really kind of enter into their life. And so we came up with this idea of does God really like me? And especially we, the subtitle of discovering the God who wants to be with us, that idea that God wants to be with his people. And that really connects with people uh, rather than just saying abstractly that God loves you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God wants to be with you. What difference is that likely to make in the life of a believer who's a little insecure about God's love for them, uh, certainly, but whether or not he does long to be with me in particular, that he really likes me in particular, what difference might it make if there was a, a biblical understanding that God does, in fact, care that much about us? Yeah, that's a great question. Just to say, I don't, we, we didn't jump on at the beginning, but I just want to come here too. Um, they, it makes a really big difference because I think we all have those feelings of deep loneliness at times when even when we're with another person, if we feel disconnected from that person. Um, it can be incredibly lonely and painful. And understanding that God not only just loves me from afar or loves me in sort of a loves all of his people collectively kind of way, but actually individually longs to be with me and delights in me can really change the way that we feel about our relationships as well. Because rather than needing to have approval and connection from another human being all the time, we can remember even in our loneliest moments that we're actually never alone because God actually wants to be with us and is happy and glad to be with us at any point in time, even when we're in those lonely, isolated spaces. Is our insecurity uh, to some degree the result of misunderstanding the depth and breadth of what Jesus has done for us? Um, Or is it that um, we just have a hard time imagining that I'm not the exception, that everyone else maybe has sinned, but no one is quite as as bad off as or unlovely as I am? Mm, 
that's a great insight. Yeah. yeah. I think it's actually both. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes our understanding of who God is uh, and what God is up to in this thing that we call salvation or the gospel can sometimes be um, not as uh, full, fully understood as, as we want. And then other times, just real personal life issues kind of keep us from receiving that love of God. And so when we, you ask, well, doesn't the Bible, John 3, 16, say for God to love the world? And that's absolutely true. But we go throughout the whole story of the Bible, and we're trying to really make that love of God concrete in, in people's lives. And so we talk about how, you know, right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, um, Joseph is, you know, told, or rather Mary is told, you know, that uh, Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus promises, I will be with you to the end of the age. And so there's all these promises that God is going to be with us, even in the midst of the difficult times, even in the midst of the confusing times. And so that's the truth we need to hold on to. But then through the stories in the book, we really talk about our own lives of shame, of disappointment, of comparing ourselves to other people. Right? We do mm-hmm. all these mental and emotional gymnastics to try to find approval of God and with other people. Uh, and so we really kind of tell our own stories about how this love of God really connects with us, too. And so we really do it from both ends, the truth of the gospel, but then also um, our own experiences. Yeah, and I think, um, oh, sorry. No, please go ahead. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters, the title is, Is God Disgusted With Me? Mm-hmm. I think that's that the question that you were asking about, you know, do we believe that we're the exception and God couldn't possibly overlook all the things that I have done? Um, and I think that that chapter really gets at the heart of that, of the, that we get, we get disgusted with ourselves. Um, I think we are so filled with remorse and shame over our own sin that it, it's so difficult for us to imagine that even in that place that God would still draw near to us and seek us out and pursue us. Yeah, and he so, has made provision for just how unworthy we are. And we, it's hard for us to really appreciate all that he's done in order to give us that access. Absolutely. Yeah. I I love that you write that uh, you've written the book for two reasons. One, to communicate to your reader that you belong in God's presence, that God is with us. And secondly, that you have a place within God's purpose, um, God through us. And and sometimes we may accept that, okay, through Christ, uh, God is with us under every circumstance, but I still am not sufficient to be, uh, to find purpose in, in God's plan. We somehow, again, Imagine that we might just make it in by the skin of our teeth, if you will, but to be a part of God's, there's a place for me within God's purpose, that might be a challenge to embrace. Yeah, absolutely. We So when you think of uh, somebody liking you, the first step is, well, yeah, they want you in your presence, right? So when you go over, when little kids go play with each other, you know, it's kind of like you can tell when one kid doesn't want another kid around, right? But, but then you know that uh, someone really wants you to be in their presence when they start letting you play with their stuff. You know, like we all went over to our grandparents' house or someone's house, and they're like, oh, you can't go in that room, or don't touch that thing. You know, it's like the really fancy houses. But God's not like that. Like, he actually says, hey, you can be with me. We, also, we, we talk about through the book about how God has invited us into his family and into his house, you know, to live in his home with us. Uh, with him. But then he also gives us, gives us a share in his business is what we kind of talk about, the family mm-hmm. business of salvation, of doing the things of God, of flourishing life. And so that's another mark that God wants to be with us is because he actually shares his mission with his, with his people. And, and that's, that's both a responsibility, but it's also a huge blessing. Yeah. Right. And also it's a blessing that transcends whatever current um, occupation we're called to. So even if you're, you know, um, serving in a drive through window, you can still have a part in God's family business as you're seeking to flourish life and to be a blessing to all the people that come through that drive through 
Um, I talk in the book a couple different times about how hard it was for me when I first um, was staying at home with my kids and feeling like I had sort of been removed from any sort of uh, visibly recognizable work in the world and how connecting with my place as being part of the most significant purpose there ever was, which is to be a blessing to the entire world, that God calls us to be a blessing to the world. And so being able to participate in that, even as a stay-at-home mom, gave me great purpose, even when I didn't feel like I was being recognized for anything that I was doing. Yeah, that's good. We're talking this afternoon about the book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And that's not just me and Sid Holsclaw and Jeff Holsclaw. We're talking about you. If you are a follower of a Christ, this applies to you. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Sid and Jeff Holsclaw. They are the authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Uh, taking us all the way through the scriptures to help us better understand God's plan and purpose for us as his children and his followers, and even the role we play in the family business, as they put it, which I I like so much. The book is divided into four parts, and each part is structured in a way that we can really take to heart what the scriptures teach us, and we begin to recognize the the heart of God toward us, regardless of our station in life. Uh, one of the things that you do at the, at the um, at each of the, the last chapters in those sections is uh, to define failure of humanity uh, to live in God's presence and uh, for God's purposes. Kind of describe how you structure each part of the book to help us not only learn what the Scripture teaches, but really to take to heart what God is saying about being uh, in His presence, His desire to be with us, um, and the purpose that that He has for us as part of His family. Yeah, well, one of the things that's clear to us all the way through Scripture is that God is always the one who's making the first move. Mm -hmm. He's always the one who's taking the initiative and offering His presence to us. And so in each of the first chapters of each of the four parts, we talk about how God is offering His presence to His people. And so part one is basically in the garden at creation, and then part two is the nation of Israel, part three is the person of Jesus Christ, and part four is the movement of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And so in each of those parts, uh, the first chapter in that section is about God's initiative, how he's offering his presence. And then the second part of that is always about how uh, we belong in his presence and how we are um, received into the family. And then the next chapter is always how we're caught up in his purpose and how he's offering for us to participate in the family business. And then the fourth part in each section is our failure as humans, how we miss the mark, how we um, fall, we stray off the path of life, we choose the path of death instead, and then what God does about that or how he continues to move toward us picks up again in the next section of Mm -hmm. each one. Except, of course, in the very last chapter of the book, which has, you know, more of a future-looking invitation into dreaming and imagining what it will look like to live with God forever. So in the first part of the book, we're talking about how God set up creation, but then um, we end that section by talking about the fall, how how Adam and Eve kind of gave in to sin, and how shame came into the world, and that's why we're all hiding. That's why we have this question, does God really like me, because we're hiding because of shame. Mm -hmm. We look at the fall there. And in the second part, 
We're talking about how God called Abraham and raised up Israel to be the people of his purposes in the world. But then we end that part, too, with kind of the failure of Israel, which is the exile where they, you know, they're kicked out of the land. Um, and God kind of has to restart his purposes. Uh, and then we go in and start talking about uh, Jesus in the third part. And, of course, that part ends with, with the cross, where Jesus has kind of taken up all of those failures of Adam and Eve and the failures of Israel, but really the sin of the whole world. And he enters into death to take care of the sin and death for us so that we can overcome shame. And then the last part of the book then is, well, how, how do we gather around that cross that saves us and gives us a new identity as children of God and a new purpose as part of the family of God. And so it's really, uh, it's going through the whole Bible and kind of sharing the whole story of God's presence and our work with us, but it's also doing it, we think, hopefully, in a very practical way so people yes. can like really kind of stay close to the text and it move. It, it's a pretty readable book. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. We tried to make it readable. <laughs> now, one of the things that really surprised me when I first opened the book, and I'm looking through the table of contents and each of the parts of the book, the first one is titled God's Idols, and you um, you parse the word image, that we are created in God's image, and why that's uh, that's important. Can you explain that? Because it threw me off initially, and I had to, as every reader should do, I had to read, okay, what are we, what are we talking about here? Because, you know, we are told that idols are something we should shun in every circumstance because we are placing in things uh, created by man's hands the attributes of God, and these are created things. So explain the, that part of the, the title and how that relates to the early part of, uh, of what we learn in Scripture. Sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, we kind of use that language on purpose because it's surprising, but it, it worked. Is, yeah, but, but that really is the, the purpose of the word, the way that it's used. It, it's really, um, you know, the reason that there's such a strong prohibition against idols is because God has already created idols of His presence and of His um, kingdom, of His rule and reign, and those idols are humanity. And so we kind of unpack the word idol and what idols meant in the ancient world um, in two different directions. One is that whenever the ancient peoples would build a temple to a god, it was said that the god didn't actually dwell in that temple until the idol had been installed in the temple. And once the idol had been installed in the temple, then it was as if the presence of the god was in that temple. And then the second way of understanding that is that uh, ancient rulers would erect statues of themselves at the edges of their boundaries so that anytime someone would cross over into that king's territory, they would see these idols standing around the edges of the territory and immediately know who was king in this place. And so when God created humanity, he was using imagery that the, I mean, what we see in scripture is using the imagery that the ancient Israelites would have understood which is that God created humanity as his idols, which are the absolute representation of his presence. The, play, the, the, the God dwells in the house of creation because the idols that he created in his image are now installed in that garden. And then he also shows clearly where his rule and reign extends in that wherever humanity goes, God's rule and reign goes with them. And so they, mar- they mark the lordship and the rule and reign of, of the king, who is God. And a lot of times people, you know, we've all probably said things like, well, if we're followers of Jesus, then we're the hands and feet of God. Um, but if we think about that, what does that actually mean? Well, it means, you know, if we're the hands and feet of God, then we're, we're kind of, a, we are the body of God and we're 
we're said in the New Testament that we're the body of Christ as Christ followers. The church is the body of Christ, and these types of things. And so we were trying to use that idol mm-hmm. to, get, to really get at that. Too, many, too much of the time, I think, when we say that the image of God, we think of, um, you know, like our smartphones and our televisions and our computer screens, like displaying an image of some information that's far away. But the biblical use in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 of this image of God is, is much more um, intimate. It's much more tangible. It's like, no, we're physically, in some sense, we, we are where God is, you know, supposed to be ruling and reigning, where, where his presence is supposed to be, you know, kind of um, gifted to the rest of the world. And so humanity, the reason why Israel was told not to have idols in one sense was certainly because God is invisible and you can't make a re- representation of who God is. But the other reason is kind of, well, because God actually made his own idols. Like he made the images that he wanted in the world, and those images are humanity. Uh, and so we're not supposed to make any any other ones because he already took care of it. Mm. Now, our time is so short and there's so much packed into this book that we won't have an opportunity to talk about. But let's talk about the Old Covenant uh, and the law revealed to us that sin existed. And it was very clear that we could not live up to, not we, but they could not live up to the standards of the law. Under the New Covenant, we uh, have been we have seen the grace of God extended over us and we have access to God because of what he has done. If we want to recognize that God does, in fact, want to. Um, uh, to be with us. I mean, believing is the, certainly the first step to do that, but that he really likes us and for, and for that reason wants to, uh, to be with us. Give us some practical steps to begin that process while we're waiting to get the book that we're going to order, <laughs> Does God Really Like Me, uh, to really study this out. Yeah, well, some practical steps for that are, um, I have found it really helpful to do what I call Emmanuel journaling, which is, we, we talk about it quite a bit in the book. Mm-hmm. We, do, um, we do practical exercises at the end of each chapter to sort of build the progression. Um, but I think first and foremost, is I would encourage people to actually go and look at the, the book of Exodus and read about Hagar, um, Genesis, Genesis sorry, <laughs> Genesis, and, and find the story of, of Hagar, and then also go to Exodus and find the story of God visiting Moses in the burning bush. And um, those are just two places to start. We're seeing this very personal God that comes down and visits his people, and especially Hagar. Hagar has always been especially significant to me um, because she is not part of the promised line, and God really doesn't have any particular reason to treat her in any sort of special way because she's not part of his promised line. And yet when she is... um, when she runs away from Abram and is out in the wilderness, God actually goes out of his way, pursues her, and speaks to her and makes promises to her. And He says, she names him the God who sees me. And so I think even just beginning to understand and try to think about what would it be like for God to see me right now, to actually be able to see me. And if he sees all of me and he still wants to be with me, that could be an invitation to how can I begin to receive his presence with me on a daily basis and just trying to imagine that God can actually see me where I am. And I know for some people that will stir up a lot of shame because they'll be thinking, I don't want God to see me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I mean, we do address that in the book too, of ways to be able to meet God even in our darkest places and have him come alongside and, and say to us, you are my beloved child. We talk about the baptism of Jesus and how when we are in Christ, that delight that the father has for Jesus That's at right. his baptism is the same delight 
that we are brought into yes. when we are baptized in his name. Oh, so good. Once again, the book is titled, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, currently available. Sid and Jeff Holsklaw, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Bye-bye. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with Jordan Rayner, author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Now, he'll be my guest um, tomorrow on the program. On Wednesday, we're going to talk with retired judge Tom Cole. Paid in full is the ministry. And boy, are there some big updates. We're going to bring you uh, the latest uh, with regard to how this ministry establishing a seminary-type education on the Oregon State Prison campus and um, some other developments that are drawing attention to this rather significant ministry and the story that fueled this um, this outreach to incarcerated men. Tom Cole, retired judge, Washington County, will join us tomorrow to talk about that. And then on Thursday, Catherine James, a prayer for Orion, a son's addiction and a mother's love. She lost her son to addiction, and she's written about it. We'll talk with her about that on Thursday's program. Well, a man and a woman, both in same-sex marriages, have sued Fuller Theological Seminary for discrimination after uh, the uh, seminary expelled them over their same-sex marriages. Now, Fuller, which is located, as you may know, in Pasadena, California, is the nation's largest interdenominational seminary. The lawsuit represents a move that Christian organizations have anticipated in light of the legalization of same-sex marriage. Now, the suit could become a landmark First Amendment case. Now, Nathan Britson, a pastor and expelled student who is in a same-sex marriage, added his name to a lawsuit against Fuller earlier this month. He joins um, Joanna Maxson, who filed a lawsuit in November after Fuller expelled her in 2018 for also being in a same-sex marriage. Now, the two claim that since Fuller receives federal funding, the seminary is violating Title IX of the Civil Rights Act, which says that no person can be discriminated against under any education program receiving federal financial aid on account of sex. Now, one of the questions that the Supreme Court is currently pondering is sexual orientation and sex as used in statute if they mean the same thing. Well, the Obama administration had um, interpreted sex to include discrimination on the basis of assigned sex gender identity, sexual orientation, and transgender status, all of them. Well, the Trump administration has rolled back those interpretations, however, and uh, are relying on the plain language of the law at the time it was passed. While the seminary is religious in nature, it offers a wide range of degree programs and doesn't require students to adhere to a statement of faith. Now, Fuller has not applied for or received a religious exemption from the required Title IX. Now, that might be... Uh, one thing that uh, un- that seminaries and Christian colleges and universities may reconsider, Britson and Maxson, the two plaintiffs in the case, are making a full-fledged case that they've been discriminated against. This is a civil rights case about two students who were re- expelled from their graduate program for one reason. They married someone of the same sex, a portion of the amended complaint reads. But Fuller insists that this lawsuit violates the school's First Amendment rights, and they say they hired the well-known religious liberty firm Beckett to defend it in court. Well, Beckett attorney, uh, attorneys rather liken the case to one they previously tried and won at the Supreme Court in 2012. Equal Employment Opportunity versus Hosanna Tabor, 
a case about ministerial exceptions to federal laws. Well, in that case, a commissioned minister and teacher sued Hosanna Tabor, a Lutheran church and school in Michigan, for discrimination after she had been fired for insubordination and disruptive conduct, a violation of the church's teaching. Well, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in favor of Hosanna Tabor, protecting the ministerial exception that ensures churches have the right to choose their own leaders and carry out their religious beliefs without government interference. In that opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts said the church must be free to choose those who will guide it on its way. Now, here we're talking about faculty in the case with Fuller. We're talking about students. So how will that apply? It's an unanswered question thus far. Well, this case raises significant questions. Does expelling a student for entering a same-sex marriage count as discrimination for legal purposes? And if Fuller has discriminated, should it lose access to federal funding? And if so, how would that bode for the hundreds of other similar Christian schools. Well, if sexual orientation and, for that matter, gender identity were protected class under the federal law, then this would qualify as discrimination. But federal civil rights law does not protect sexual orientation and gender identity. Fuller did not discriminate. Well, even if it did, however, the plaintiff's argument may have to pass extra scrutiny because they're suing not just any school, but a seminary. Courts tend to defer a great deal of religious uh, to uh, religious institutions when it comes to matters of conscience. Traditional Christian teaching holds that sex should be between a man and a woman within the bonds of a covenant marriage relationship. As outdated, traditional, and bigoted as that may sound to some, this is a closely held religious belief, and most Christian organizations do not consider it discriminatory to hold or live by such beliefs. Now, if this lawsuit succeeds, it would set a new and worrisome precedent that organizations like Fuller can no longer expect to operate according to their conscience. Uh, It would strip Christian colleges and seminaries of the ability to be true to their convictions and foster a faithful Christian community. It is certainly understandable that the plaintiffs don't want to be expelled from the seminary they chose to attend, but the seminary is a private institution, and those who voluntarily attend the seminary can be held to its ethical standards. Well, Fuller has the right to be Fuller, at least we think so today, and these plaintiffs have the right to be themselves. It is imperative that the laws continue to protect the ability of schools like Fuller to carry out their mission in good conscience, even if that means removing noncompliant students uh, from their roles. And that will be the question that uh, is uh, currently being considered in the lawsuit that could ultimately become a uh, landmark uh, First Amendment case if and when it it uh, arrives at the U.S. Supreme Court. So a very uh, interesting case. Again, a Fuller Theological Seminary um, and two students, a man and a woman, both in same-sex marriages, who have now sued for discrimination after being expelled for their same-sex marriages. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Jordan Rayner, Master of One. Find and focus on the work you were created to do. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.